Well, as always, it's wonderful to be behind the pulpit. Wonderful to be with you. You are the nicest people I know this morning. And uh, that is good. As I often do when I get an opportunity to preach, I'd like to uh, spend a few moments in what I was often called the pastoral prayer or the prayers of the people. So uh, I would invite you to bow your heads with me. Quiet your spirits. I don't know what kind of morning you've had. Maybe it's been busy. Maybe you've been fighting with dogs or kids or cats or uh, snow. But uh, take a deep breath and let it out. And let's pray. Creator of all that was and is and is to come, Come through the closed doors of our emotions, our minds, and imaginations. Come alongside us as we walk. Come to us this morning, this coming week at work, at school. Come into our meetings and our councils. Come and call us by name. Call us to pilgrimage. Wounded healer. Out of our disunity, may we be remembered, put back together. Out of the pain of division, may we see your glory. Call us from present preoccupation into future community. Spirit of unity, challenge our preconceptions. Enable us to grow in love and understanding. Accompany us on our journey together. That we may go out with confidence into your world as a new creation. One body in you that the world might believe. We bring you our needs. The hurts and the concerns of this world which you have entrusted to us. In which in so many cases we have unintentionally or intentionally damaged and disfigured. We ask that you would make us instruments of peace in a world fractured by war, instruments of healing in a world that is damaged and hurting, instruments of love in a world that is all too often filled with hatred. Use us, O oh God, as tools and materials to build a better world, a more Christ-like world, a more godly world, a more loving and caring world here, in our homes, in our workplace, in our city, across this province, this nation, and far beyond. Hear our prayers now as we pray for our leaders, for those in authority over us. Whether we agree with them or not, it matters not. They are our leaders, and we pray for them, for this church and a multitude of other church bodies meeting at this moment across this city and province and world, for governments and councils and boards and individuals. We pray for wisdom tolerance, good decisions, men and women who will follow you and listen for your voice and act and live accordingly. We ask your blessing, peace, and protection on the pastoral team of this congregation, upon all the ministry leaders, all the teachers, all those involved in worship and tech and all the other activities that take place from making coffee to whatever. And we pray for the person sitting on our right. 
and on our left, even if we don't know their name. The one in front, the one behind. The ones across the aisle. Oh, loving God, hear our prayers. And in your great love and mercy, answer. For we offer them in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You trust me, don't you? You know me well enough to trust me? Sure you do. Sure you do. Okay. I'm going to ask you to do something in a moment that you may find a bit strange, maybe even a bit difficult. But I was just aware this week once again of, of the wonderful diversity that Skyview, of how many cultural groups and language groups and nationalities are part of this incredible fellowship that we have. It's amazing. I believe last year someone took account, and I think it was about 22 or 23 different language groups represented in our congregation at that time. Okay. The Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, is a wonderful brief expression of, of what it means to pray. That's what Jesus gave to us and to his disciples. This morning, I'm going to ask you to pray with me that prayer. If you don't know it, pray another prayer. But I'm asking you, I'm asking you here comes the hard part. I'm going to ask you to pray it aloud, and I'm going to ask you to pray it in your first language, whatever that is. Doesn't matter. If it's English, that's great. If it's French, Spanish, Ukrainian, whatever it is, Mandarin. I'm going to ask you to pray it aloud, nice and loud, and it's going to make a cacophony of praise to God. And he's going to understand it all. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? He's going to understand it all, and he's going to sort it out, you know? He's going to hear the individuals. Got it? All right, this is going to be neat. You're going to love it. Right? Sure you will. Okay. Bow your heads with me. Clear your throats. <clears throat> Here we go. Our Heavenly Father, may your name be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread today and forgive us our offenses as we forgive those who have offended us. And don't allow us to fall into temptation, but save us from evil. Because the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. Pretty good for a first time. Through. We'll do it again. We're a little reticent. We're kind of shy. Next time, we'll shout it out. God loves diversity. There used to be a poster. I saw a poster in a church one time that said, God must love licorice. He loves all sorts. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> when I was pastoring in Saskatoon, Many years ago, we had a bulletin board outside our church, large bulletin board with a light on it. And for better or for worse, I became known as the pastor in the city who always had some interesting saying on the bulletin board. People would drive by Louise Street Community Church just to see what Cooney had done next. <laughs> and those of you who know me very well know that I love to pun, and so many times it was deep. <laughs> All right, enough of this nonsense. That's not nonsense. Prayer certainly is not necessary. I'm going to invite you to stand with me to the reading of the gospel this morning. And I think we have a prayer, I hope, that we'll say together. And then I'll read a very short passage from the gospel of Luke. Let's pray. 
Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, a very short and I hope familiar parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I asked you if you trusted me. Most of you know me pretty well. I want to be really honest and candid with you this morning. I found the message this morning really, really difficult to write. Early in the week, Monday, even on Tuesday, as I read and reread and reread the scriptures and looked at the commentaries and prayed, I think I encountered what some of you will understand is called writer's block. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just didn't, it was nothing there. I knew that Sunday was coming. Anxiety went up a step. That I was preaching, anxiety went up three steps. But felt like I had nothing to say, anxiety, ten. It's very frightening. I find as I get older, I'm more prone to anxiety. Some of you who are in my Bible study will understand that from Thursday night when Zoom decided not to work. And you could probably see the anxiety level in me go up if you were able to get on the screen. We got that sorted out, by the way. To be totally candid, though, as I thought and prayed about this incident in my life, I think I came to this conclusion. I was more concerned about how I might sound and look to all of you and what you might think of me and whether I would look stupid or whether I would embarrass myself or embarrass the church or embarrass God. If I might look out and see some eye rolling, <laughs> which I knew I wouldn't. How embarrassing it would be to come to the lectern this morning, look out at you and say, sorry, I haven't got anything for you. God bless you, go home. Now, some of you might have enjoyed that. No, no, you wouldn't. And so I prayed, good thing to do. And I reflected and I thought. And I sensed God saying to me, you know, Cooney, this isn't about you, what you do Sunday morning. It's not about you. It's about me. So here is what I believe I have for you this morning. This is the third of four messages in this current series. 
about reconciliation. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan spoke about worship as a vehicle of reconciliation. Last week, Pastor Tootsie brought a message about the relationship between restoration and justice. My assignment, according to the plans that were set out before Pastor Stewart left on sabbatical, was restoration and prayer. And then next week, Pastor Ryan is back and we'll finish up the series with another perspective on restoration. Restoring, being restored. I want to reflect with you on the relationship of prayer to restoration and restoration to prayer. Worship, I believe, properly understood is offered to God in the context of a restored relationship with God. Worship is a relational thing. Worship is about friends talking to friends because our brother Jesus is our friend. God has invited us to be part of his family, to be friends. Worship is relational. And as a sidebar, I believe everything from sin to salvation is relational. John Wesley one time said in one of his letters that there is no such thing as an individual Christian. We live it out in community. That's what it's about. And think about that. To seek and receive reconciliation with God and with other people, I believe we must walk consistently in the pathway of prayer. The very desire to be reconciled with anyone or with God comes from what is sometimes called prevenient grace. That is the grace of the Holy Spirit in our eyes before we even respond to God. God's at work in us before we ever acknowledge him. Otherwise, we would never acknowledge him. If God were not wooing us by his spirit, calling us, inviting us, making us sometimes uncomfortable, we would never respond. Reconciliation begins in that provenient grace. The desire to pray with God comes to us as that grace works within us. If we are to be in relation with somebody, or relationship with somebody, to be reconciled to somebody, we need to talk to them. Talking is good. It's important. You can't have a relationship, I believe, without communicating with one another in some way. The passage of Scripture before us this morning is the second of two parables back-to-back on the theme of prayer. So come and listen with me this morning. Let your imaginations go a little bit. Come and listen with the crowd to a story about two very different men who come to the temple to pray, both walking the pathway of prayer, but who wind up in very different destinations. I want to examine what I've chosen to call the players in this drama. Then the nature of their prayers, and finally, a few observations about our own journey on the pathway that leads to reconciliation with God and with others. And so, the players, the dramatis personae in this story. There are four characters in the drama. Jesus, the crowd, made up of many characters, a Pharisee, and a tax collector. Small cast, well, except for the crowd. 
Jesus we know well. I'm going to assume that. The crowd was a mixed bag who gathered to hear Jesus teach. The Pharisee was an educated and leading member of the Jewish religious elite. And the tax collector was considered by most people to be a lackey or a puppet of the Roman government. He was a man almost universally disliked, hated even, and distrusted. Tax collectors were thought to be thieves because they would tax 10% of whatever the Romans wanted, but then take 20 from you, so they had 10% for themselves. That's how they made their living. Many tax collectors were wealthy. Not all were crooks and thieves, but many were. Jesus, the teacher and rabbi from the little village of Nazareth, was rapidly gaining a following and a reputation. To some, he was a puzzle. To others, a troublemaker. To others, the promised one of God, the Messiah. He was popular with his followers, puzzling to many, distrusted and even hated by his enemies. The ordinary people on the whole loved him, especially when he challenged and bested the religious leaders of Israel whom the popular people often saw as being rather arrogant and conceited and controlling. And when Jesus poked the bear, if you will, got into it with the Romans a little bit, albeit carefully, they liked him even better because all Israel hated the Romans, their occupiers, those who controlled them and manipulated them and disrespected their religion. A few of the religious leaders seemed impressed with Jesus, honestly curious but carefully quiet about it, for they didn't want to be isolated from their fellows. The crowd that gathered where Jesus taught and those who traveled with him around the countryside and into the cities and villages of Israel were mainly but not exclusively from the common folk, plain vanilla people, just ordinary people, shepherds, farmers, tradesmen, the corporal, the halt, and the lame. With a thinking of intellectuals and religious people thrown in. But there was another group who dogged Jesus' steps, the religious leaders led by the high priest and his immediate cabinet. And they were suspicious and afraid and opposed to Jesus of Nazareth for both religious and political reasons. He was questioning the status quo of their religiosity. And they felt that if Jesus made too much trouble and became too popular, the Romans would come in and put the hammer down, not only on Jesus and his followers, but on all of Israel. And historically, in A.D. 70, that's exactly what happened as the Romans destroyed the temple, burned the city of Jerusalem, and left it in tatters and ruins. They were becoming more and more convinced that Jesus had to be dealt with and probably harshly and quickly in order to save the Jewish faith and the Jewish nation. This was the crowd that gathered. These were the ones who came and listened that day. Some were curious, some were sincerely seeking, some were looking to trap him, looking for lynching. But we encounter two distinct figures here the main characters in the story that Jesus told. We have a Pharisee, an unnamed man. We don't know what his name was. 
who represents the religious leaders in the crowd. He was a member of a highly trained, highly committed, dedicated religious elite who knew the law and knew the rules and knew what they had to do in order to please God. The Pharisee was not a hypocrite. He came to the temple because that's what Pharisees and what Jews were supposed to do every day. He came to pray. Then we have a tax collector. CRA employee. No, sorry. Hope none of you work for CRA. Like CRA, they give me a refund every year. I'm very happy with them. We have a tax collector. A moment of a group who, a member of a group who were considered puppets of the ruling Roman government, who were shunned and detested and distrusted and considered traitors to Judaism, thieves, and nobody liked them. They hated them. They shunned them. They turned their face away. They rolled their eyes when a tax collector walked by. The tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Romans and grew wealthy on the backs of their fellows. Now, I do find this interesting. I hope you do as well. That Matthew, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle of Jesus' confidants, had been a tax collector. Hmm. When Jesus called him and singled him out and said, come and follow me. The Pharisee was a man who believed his actions were faultless did not realize that he was wrong. The tax collector was a man with deep regrets who desired and longed to get it right. And he did. So those are the characters. Those are the players. Let's look at the problem. This isn't rocket science. It's a pretty simple sermon. Pretty simple passage. Pretty powerful. So as we keep in mind the theme of reconciliation this morning, we find two men in deep need of just that, both seeking to receive or to maintain a reconciled relationship with their creator, both wanting to talk with God. For the tax collector in particular, I believe a longing to be reconciled with his fellow Israelites. I don't know this. This is going between the lines where preachers like to live. We love to live, you know, work between the lines. I think the tax collector was lonely. He may have been bitter and angry, but I, I think he was really lonely. Jewish society was very collegial. It was very, very relational. Maybe his own family had rejected him. But I kind of think that he was lonely because it's lonely being an outsider. It's lonely being an outcast. It's lonely being a pariah where you work or where you go to school or where you live. The Pharisee was isolated from his fellow Jews. Smirked at probably by the Romans. Manipulated. The Pharisees saw their calling and mission to maintain Israel's relationship with God by fastidious example, legalistic practice, and teaching. Many of the Pharisees, as I've said before, 
we're sincere. Pharisees sometimes get a really bum rap. And they could be very nasty people. But they were sincere. Most of them. Serious. Convinced that their practices were the way to God. And since that was their way to God, it must be everybody's way to God. Ever met anybody like that? Don't answer. The Pharisee came to pray as he thought he should, as the law demanded, serious and convinced. But his words betrayed a problem deep within him and with his understanding of God. The name Pharisee shares a root with another word which means a fence builder. And Pharisee, if it says, don't go 100 kilometers an hour, a fence builder says, well, I'll go 50 and drive you crazy on the dirt road. But that's the idea. Let's be really careful so we don't transcend the law. Really careful. They were guardians of all things orthodox, interpreters of the law and commands of God, the religious watchdogs against compromise, impurity, and heresy. But as is often the case when we build fences instead of bridges, the Pharisees were often judgmental and proud and arrogant and angry. They were sincere in what they sought to do. Their intentions were not evil in themselves, but the often embodied attitudes and practices that were harsh, that lacked love, and were short on patience. And so the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, and rogues, and adulterers. You're even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. If you will, he was giving all the right answers on the test, and he still flunked. It can happen sometimes if you're in the wrong test. I believe that one of the great temptations and dangers to those who seek to live holy and sanctified lives, as is part of our tradition within the Wesleyan tradition, to live lives of holiness, is that we can slip into the attitude and ways we see in the Pharisee. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anybody here this morning. Thanks be to God. But I have met, occasionally... Christians who are pretty judgmental, who remind me more of the Pharisee than of the tax collector. Just saying. But then let's go to the tax collector. No one really likes tax time in April. Revenue Canada often gets bad press, but we have little concept of just how hated and detested and despised the tax collectors in Israel were. My goodness. I've shared about that already, but it's fair to suggest that this man longed, like most isolated and lonely people, for relationship and acceptance and fellowship. I get the feeling the tax collector had maybe reached the end of his rope, so to speak. And so he comes to the temple to pray, in spite of the stairs. <laughs> What's he doing here? In spite of being distrusted, he's probably going to rip us off or steal the offering. In spite of all those things, he came. 
I believe his presence in the parable and in the temple should be interpreted as sincere and heartfelt. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come. He was Jewish as well. He knew the law. We don't know when the last time he was in temple was, but here he was. There's no doubt that this man had no illusions about his failures and his need and his words. I think there was within him a humbleness of heart that he probably hid behind pride and affluence and bluster. We've all met people like that. And from his isolation, perhaps even from his guilt, perhaps his disgust with what he had become, he prayed simply, yet very profoundly. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. For the usual Jewish way of prayer was like this. Instead, he looked down and beat his breast, a sign of sorrow and grief. And he prayed simply, yet profoundly, God, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen. Jesus employs the tax collector and his prayers as a foil to the Pharisee in his words. Like light and dark, like night and day, like the contrast in a jewelry store when the salesman or saleswoman puts the diamond on a dark black background so it reflects and shows more. I believe that's kind of what Jesus is up to here. Those are the characters. Finally, the pathway. Both Pharisee and tax collector desired to live their lives to be reconciled to God and others. It seems clear that in their way they both loved God and understood themselves to be children of the covenant or they would not have dared to come to temple. And in their way they longed to please God, the Pharisee in his way and the tax collector in his way. But their individual attitudes to their common faith, their self-knowledge and understanding of what pleased God were polar opposites of each other. They both wanted to walk the pathway of fellowship with God and with others. One saw himself as an example of all that was holy and pure, orthodox and right, and lifted his eyes upward and looked around him and down his nose at those nearby and spoke in a way that dripped with self-justification and pride. The Pharisee saw himself as already right with God. His eyes were blinded by his self-importance and his opinion of who he was and why God should hear his prayers as opposed to others. The tax collector saw himself, but his vision was much different than that of the Pharisee. His physical attitude of humble regret and embarrassment was a reflection of his self-awareness. He knew whom he had become, who he was, but he still longed to be in a relationship with his God. The Pharisee focused on the externals. The tax collector realized that to be reconciled to God was a matter of internals, of a humble heart. For if the heart is right with God, the externals will follow as the day follows the night. Both men walked on a pathway of prayer that day in the temple, but each walked a different pathway paved with different attitudes. 
This contrast in attitude is important and pivotal. Prideful self-congratulation and unawareness as opposed to humility and self-awareness of a deep dependency upon God's grace and kindness and love. There's a warning that needs to be considered and heeded carefully by all of us this morning as we consider this story. We are, I think, rightly drawn to the tax collector. We like him. Yeah, go tax collector. We dislike the Pharisee and his arrogance and misplaced hope. Absolutely understanding. That's the way the story is set up. How else could we feel? Really. But listen well. Listen well to me. It's very easy for us to become so proud that we're humble. The Pharisee was proud that he was not like the tax collector. Are we not inclined to be equally proud that we are not like the Pharisee? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Either way, it's pride. And pride is not that which will open the door to a closer and lasting fellowship with God. That door opens only to the keys of humility and compassion. Our natural inclination is to judge harshly the Pharisee. Bad, bad Pharisee, bad Pharisee. And to applaud for the tax collector. Yeah, you were kind of a weasel, but you've seen the light. <laughs> do I, do we, Take pride in how well we're living out our faith. <laughs> Falling headlong into the trap of self-promotion and gratitude. Oh, subtly. But do I? Do we? We must guard ourselves, our hearts, and our attitudes, and our actions from anything that we used to think that our actions have earned our relationship with God, that God is somehow beholden to us. How could he not like me? What a nice person I am. Tread carefully, Doug, my friends, lest we also fall into the trap of comparing ourselves with those whom we think are on the outside of God's grace. Compassion and acceptance as we understand it. Remember that the Pharisee and the tax collector were both members of the Jewish faith. I like the people that I like best. I like all of you because we're kind of similar. We kind of think the same way. Well, maybe not totally by any means. That'd be boring. But we worship in somewhat the same way. And as I said, we are the nicest people we know. When I say what I said, I ask myself, are there individuals or groups who sincerely consider themselves to be Christ followers, God followers, who do it differently than I do. Who don't sing the same songs or pray the same way or go to the same church or hang the same name on themselves. Do I sometimes, in the silence of my heart, do you ever say, thank you, God, that I'm not like them in my words or my attitudes or my actions? 
Our theme this week is prayer and reconciliation. Reconciliation to God, reconciliation to our fellows. To be reconciled to someone begins with the desire to have a relationship with them. To have it put right again. The roots of reconciliation grow in the soil of honest repentance. And a deep desire. They are watered by that repentance for whatever part we may have played in the destruction of that relationship. Sometimes it isn't our fault. Other times it is. Sometimes in part. Remember the old saying, there's your story, my story, and then the real story? The pathway to reconciliation is paved and empowered by prayer. If we would be reconciled to someone, we must pray for them. If we cannot lift them up before God, then we will never be reconciled with them. It just isn't going to happen. We may not like them, particularly not like what they've done. We may not want to invite them to our home for dinner or even out for coffee. That's okay. Well, it's not okay, but it's okay. But if we cannot pray for them, if we cannot ask God for his best for them, whatever that looks like, then there is no hope of reconciliation ever. And maybe there won't be this side of heaven, but one day there will be. We hope and pray. A love and a spirit that's enhanced and fed as we pray, worship, serve, and love others in Jesus' name, even when it's not reciprocated. In a moment, we'll share this ancient but always new sacrament of communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, whatever name you are familiar with. Eucharist simply means thankfulness, thanksgiving. Amongst other things, the bread and the wine are a sign, a symbol, even a vehicle of our desire to be reconciled with God and with others. In our tradition, we don't share the common cup, at least not often, for various reasons. But in other traditions, all drink from the same cup. I long for the day when COVID is dead and gone and we can have the common loaf and tear off a piece. A sign that we are one in Christ Jesus. But we will eat and drink the symbols of the body and the blood of our Lord. To dine together, to break bread together, to sit and eat at the same table from the same dishes of the same food, this is both a sign and a way to experience true reconciliation with one another. If you eat from my loaf, if you drink from my cup, if you sit around my table and eat from the plates that have been prepared and we share together in some societies without utensils but only with our hands, choosing carefully which hand we use. That is a sign that we're one. That we're in community. That we have been reconciled. Hear these words of St. Paul's with which I close. Taken to that fractured little church, taken from the letter to that fractured little church in Corinth. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them, 
And entrusting the message, catch this, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. We are to be bridge builders, not wall builders. We are to be bridge builders, not wall builders. Paul says, so we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. I entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And seek to be reconciled to others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we live in a world that is divided along so many lines and in so many ways from race and color and religion and politics, ethnicity and culture, geography. And we long to be reconciled. We long to be reconciled to you and walk in fellowship with you, Lord God. We long to be reconciled and live at peace with our brothers and sisters. Let it be. Amen.